Well, open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 1 through 14 this morning. All right, Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful that um, you've given us this chance to be here this morning, and uh, we do praise you because we know that it is in your blood alone, the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, that we find forgiveness, we find eternal life, we find access to you, and we know we can worship you this morning because we have eternal life. Because you have set aside the old covenant with its laws and regulations, which only cleanse the outside, and you have given us a new covenant in Jesus Christ to cleanse our consciences and our hearts and our spirits. And Father, we pray that as we study your word this morning, you would move in us by your spirit, that we might be transformed to be the men and women of God that you want us to be. Lord, we thank you again, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, several years ago uh, on the TV show Seinfeld, some of you may have seen an episode uh, in which they talked about uh, the soup Nazi Some of you have perhaps seen the soup Nazi, and the idea behind the soup Nazi was uh, this was a guy who supposedly made the best soup in New York City, but in order to get the soup, you had to follow certain rules of his establishment. You had to go in, and uh, you couldn't chit-chat with him a whole lot. Uh, You had to have your money ready, put it on the counter, know what soup you wanted, say it, and then you had to step all the way over to the extreme left of the counter and wait. Uh, He might give you bread, he might not, you couldn't complain, he might give you something extra, he might not. And if you did anything wrong, he would yell that catchphrase, right, no soup for you, and he'd kick you out. And now what a lot of people don't know is that uh, the soup Nazi on that show is actually based on a real person. 
there's a real guy. His name is Al Yagana, and uh, he owns a soup shop. This is him, friendly-looking guy. Uh, he owns a uh, soup shop in New York City, and uh, if you, he actually has a website. He's begun franchising his soup stores, and uh, he, if you go on his website, has actually a real list of the real rules that you have to follow, and it says exactly this. Have your money ready. It says... Uh, Make sure that you uh, pick the soup ahead of time, and then after you order, move to the extreme left and wait there. He does not yell no soup for you, but if you get the uh, rules wrong, he sends you to the back of the line. And sometimes the line goes all the way around the block, and so this guy will send you all the way to the back. you got to wait. He even has rules posted on his website for the press, people who might call him wanting to do interviews. No personal questions, no follow-up questions, no questions mentioning the Nazi word, because he's offended, by that and no other and other such rules. The idea is that uh, if you want to approach this guy, you got to have a certain behavior. There's a certain set of rules. The bonus is apparently the soup is great. If you do it right, you get the reward, and the reward is the soup. Now it seems ridiculous to make people follow all of these rules, but if it's worth it to you, you'll do it. Now the reason I share this is because when we look at the Old Testament. A lot of times I think we read the Old Testament and we think, man, this seems like just a bunch of silly rules that uh, the people had to go through if they wanted to approach God. And so we look at certain rules like uh, no clothing made of two different kinds of thread or uh, you can't boil a goat in its mother's milk or things along those lines. And we go, what in the world is the deal? There's all kinds of regulations about what to do if you sinned. There's all kinds of regulations about ceremonial cleansing. If you accidentally touched a dead body, what you had to do. And I think sometimes we look at that and we go, man, it just seems like a a strange set of rules. But the point behind the Old Testament law was this. If the people would follow the rules that God set forth, they had the opportunity to worship God in the land without being destroyed. The idea behind these rules was to demonstrate to the people that God is holy and you are sinful. And if you follow God's commandments, you can have life. You can have peace. You can live in the land that he has promised to you. You won't be overtaken by your enemies. You won't experience death and destruction or the judgment of God. And so in the Old Testament, we see a set of commands specifically for the nation of Israel designed to allow them to worship God. The problem with the system, as we've talked about through the book of Hebrews, is that it was insufficient. It's not that it was bad. God gave it as a great gift to the nation of Israel so that they could worship him. The problem is that it was insufficient. And you remember last week we talked about how in Jesus Christ, God has initiated a brand new way of relating to him, not through the law, but through Jesus directly that we can approach God through Jesus Christ because in Jesus now the spirit of God lives in us. And the fundamental problem that the Old Testament covenant did not deal with sufficiently was this issue of sin. Particularly, the Old Testament covenant, what it could do was it could cover over your sin temporarily, but it could never take it away, never got rid of it. And it never dealt with the fact that at our core, you and I are sinful. It's not just that occasionally we slip up and we make mistakes. The problem is that to uh, our very core, you and I are born in sin. And so even to approach God, even after all the sacrifices and offerings, the problem is that I'm unclean and I'm sinful. And there was no way in the Old Testament system to get rid of that. And that's what we began to talk about last week when we talked about the new covenant. Because the problem you and I have in relating to God, it's really not 
the problem that our world might say that we have, right? The problem is not that we are not smart enough. The problem is not that we need to try harder to be good. The problem is not that we're victims, that we had bad parents or we've got a bad culture around us. The problem is that we're sinful. The problem is that you and I have violated God's standards. And regardless of what we might like to believe, the truth of the scripture is that God punishes violations of his holiness. There has to be a sacrifice made. And until there is, we can't approach God. And so the problem we have that needs fixing, the problem that ultimately creates everything that's bad in the culture around us, that creates the bad circumstances we see that may have even created the issues with our parents or our family, the problem boils down to sin. So as we look at the passage this week, what we're going to see is that this challenge that humanity has wrestled with really since the beginning of humanity, since Adam and Eve, this problem that separates us from God, the law has one way of dealing with it and Jesus Christ has another way. And what we're going to see in Hebrews is that the old way in Jesus Christ is fading away and the new way is coming. And the reason is because the old way was insufficient. And the author begins uh, by talking a little bit about the old way to illustrate to us what it was and what it meant and how it was that the people approached God in this old system of worship. So begin again in chapter nine, verse one. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. All right, so he begins by describing this old system. He says, this is how people used to approach God under the old covenant. All right, now, as you read all of this stuff about the tabernacle, if you're not real familiar with the Old Testament, it may not make a whole lot of sense. So I want to explain to you for a few minutes. Here was the old system. Right, in doing so, I want you to understand the uh, level to which God took his holiness seriously and their sin. Right, I, I'm going to show you, this is a picture. Uh, obviously, this is not a photograph. This is the artist's rendering of the tabernacle. All right, now, if you look at the tabernacle, what you'll see is in the wilderness, after the people left Egypt under Moses, and they were wandering around in the wilderness, ended up being 40 years. In order to worship God, God commanded them to put together this tabernacle. The tabernacle was basically like a mobile or a movable temple. Later on, under the reign of Solomon, while they were living in the land, this was built into a permanent structure that was called the temple. But while they were still in the wilderness, the tabernacle was the way that they worshiped God, where the priests would do their work. All right, and right here on the outside of this tent back here, this is called the outer court. You have an altar. This was the altar of burnt offering. If you committed a sin or you were somehow ceremonially unclean, you would go in and you would bring either a goat or a bull or a lamb and the priest would take it and he would sacrifice it on that altar. Even pigeons 
for ceremonial cleansing for people who were, poor, who were poor. There was a little laver right here. This little laver was where the priests would wash up their hands, but also they would use that water to wash the sacrifices themselves. There were certain aspects of the sacrifices that the priests would eat. So on a day-to-day basis, the priests are doing all kinds of sacrifices in here. You can imagine this area is constantly covered in the blood of goats and bulls and lambs and all sorts of animals from people who brought sacrifices. But then there was a tent, and I'm over here now, there was a tent, and the tent, which they've depicted as being green here, uh, the tent inside was separated into two areas. All right, this front area was called the holy place. And inside the holy place, you had three items of furniture as it's described in Exodus. First was the table of showbread. All right, on this table, there would be 12 pieces of unleavened bread. And every Sabbath day, the priests would eat the bread and then they would replenish the bread on the table. All right, it was a symbol of how the people were sustained and fed by the presence of God. All right, it was probably also a reminder to them of how God had sustained them in the wilderness with the manna. All right, so they would eat this bread, they would replenish it. On the other side is a lampstand. Had seven uh, lamps on it or candles. It was almost like, looked like what you see a menorah look like today. And they would light this lampstand so that they could see in order to do their work, but also it represented probably the presence of God or the glory of God with them. All right, and then finally, there was the altar of incense, in which there was a constant aroma of incense going up before the Lord, most likely representing their prayers and their relationship with God. All right, so on a day-to-day basis, all the priests would go in there and they would do their work in that front part, the holy place. But then there was the back area, which was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And inside the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Ark is just a word that means box, all right? And and it was the Ark of the Covenant that God had commanded them to create when they created the tabernacle. And nobody went in here except for the high priest. In the Ark of the Covenant, inside, there were three things. There was Aaron's staff that budded to demonstrate that he was the priest God had chosen. There was a jar of manna to demonstrate how God had preserved them in the wilderness. And then thirdly was the tablets that Moses brought down from the mountain, the second set of tablets after the one that he broke, that Moses brought down from the mountain that had the Ten Commandments engraved in them. And those were in the Ark. And on top of the Ark was what was called the mercy seat or the lid of the ark. And on this mercy seat were two cherubim or angels with their wings facing each other and they would spread apart and their wings would touch. Nobody went into that holy of holies except for the high priest and only once a year. And the reason he went in once a year was on what they called Yom Kippur or the day of atonement. If you have Jewish friends, they still will celebrate Yom Kippur, not in the same way they used to. All right, but on Yom Kippur, the high holy day of the Jewish nation, the high priest would enter in and he would first sacrifice a bull and that was to pay for his own sins or to cover his own sins and those of the other priests. And he would take the blood of that bull and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And then he would take two goats. One goat he would uh, take into the Holy of Holies and he would sacrifice that goat, sprinkle its blood on the mercy seat and on the altar of incense on behalf of the people's sins. The other goat was what they called the goat for Azazel. And the priest would walk outside, and this was what they called also the scapegoat. If you've heard the term scapegoat, it's where they get this word. The priest would walk outside, he would place his hands on the scapegoat, 
and he would say a little prayer of forgiveness for the people. And the idea is he was transferring the sins of the people to this goat. And then they would pat the little goat on the rump and send him off into the wilderness to die. Right? Now, over time, they became more and more afraid that this goat carrying the sins of the people would walk back into the camp. So practically speaking, they would take the goat and they would lead him off a cliff so that he would die as well. The idea is that with these two goats, one covers up the sins of the people as they sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. The other is we want to get sin far away from us so they remove it out into the wilderness. And every year he would do this. So day after day, there are all of these smaller sacrifices happening. To atone, you know, if you did something that violated the law and you knew it, you would bring a sacrifice. But once a year, just as a general covering, if there's something that I forgot that I did wrong, which there probably was, if there's something wrong with me, which certainly there was, right? I'm steeped in sin. Once a year, the high priest would go in and he would make atonement on my behalf. Now, atonement essentially is a word that just means covering. He would sprinkle that blood and God would see the blood on the mercy seat. And instead of inflicting his wrath on the people, he would defer it until the next year. And then they do it again and again and again. And so this was the system under which they lived. Think about it this way. Some of you may have had, at some point in your college career, a messy roommate. Maybe some of you are a messy roommate. If you're thinking you're not that person, you probably are, right? You're probably the one, right? And uh, maybe you have a roommate that, man, they're just, they're just a mess. They leave stuff all over the living room. Their, their room is just trashed out. They haven't cleaned their bathroom since 2007. And, you know, they're just a total mess. Now, imagine how you would feel if that person came to you And they said, uh, hey, I noticed yesterday I left a pair of socks on the coffee table. Man, I'm really sorry for that. How would you react to that? That'd be a weird thing to say, right? You go, well, you you leave stuff all over all the time. Why the socks? Why is that what you came to tell me about? You would either laugh, you'd be frustrated. All right, this is a picture of what's going on with the nation of Israel as they practice this sacrificial system. They do something wrong and they know it and they go, oh, Got to take care of that. So I bring my lamb and I sacrifice it. But the problem is there's hundreds of things they've done wrong that they don't even know about. So they're dealing with this little pair of socks when the whole place is a mess. They're covered in sin. And so once a year on the Day of Atonement, that's what the Day of Atonement was supposed to deal with is that the priest would go in and he'd say, for all the stuff we forgot, all the stuff that we've done that we don't know about and the fact that we're sinful, God accept this sacrifice till the very next year. All right, and so that was what the sacrificial system accomplished. All right, it accomplished, first of all, temporary atonement. Leviticus 1 through 7, also Leviticus chapter 16, if you want to see a detailed description of this day of atonement. It temporarily paid for their sin. It also let them know how holy God was, that God was set apart and perfect, and they could not approach him apart from this series of rules. It also let them know how sinful they were, Galatians 3, 19 to 22, that the law served to tell them, I really need help. I'm separated from God. And so they were constantly making these sacrifices. That's the old system that he describes. All right, but the problem is, again, it had some deficiencies. Look at verses 8 through 10 of Hebrews 9. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. That is the holy place which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. 
since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. All right, so the Old Testament system had a problem, a couple of problems. All right, one was this. He says, it gave them no access to God. The very fact that that tabernacle was divided into two halves, a holy place and a most holy place, in its very structure, God was communicating to them, this won't work. Because there was always this curtain that separated them from the presence of God, even the priests. You could not approach God. Only one person and only once a year for a little while. And then he had to get out of there and he better do it right or he'd end up dead. So the very system was designed to say, nah, it's deficient. You don't have the access to God that you need to really worship him, to really approach him, to really know him. When I was in uh, China a number of years ago, had the opportunity in Beijing of visiting the Forbidden City. It's what it's called. And what the Forbidden City is, if you've not been there or read about it, the Forbidden City used to be the palace of the emperor. And all of the emperors of China would live in this palace. And over time, there developed sort of a mystique surrounding the emperor. They believed that he was the uh, human incarnation of a god. And so it was called the Forbidden City because you couldn't approach the emperor. A citizen couldn't just walk up and ask for an audience with the emperor. You had to be invited and you had to have a special audience. Likewise, the emperor over time was confined to the courtyard of the forbidden city. He couldn't leave except on very special occasions. So every time the people walked by the forbidden city, for many of them over time, it became a symbol of the fact that their government needed to change because it was inaccessible to the people. They could not have a hearing with their government or an audience with the emperor. The very structure of the forbidden city let them know that something was wrong. That's just what the author is saying about the tabernacle. The very structure of it lets them know it's insufficient. It doesn't work for what it needs ultimately to do, which is provide access to God. The other problem was this. It didn't remove sin. Verses 9 to 10. Again, it's a symbol for the present time. Gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. In other words, all that the old system did was cover over the sin. It could not clear out their conscience. My very first car that I had was a Nissan something horrible, Stanza or something like that. And uh, was this old car. And uh, over time, the car had developed a number of quirks, one of which was that it profusely leaked oil and transmission fluid, which uh, is a big problem when you're trying to drive a car. Uh, You need oil. And uh, if you don't have transmission fluid, you have all kinds of problems. And so in this car, what I would do is I would actually carry around in my trunk a couple of quarts of oil and a couple of quarts of transmission fluid. And I would drive somewhere and then I'd drive home and I'd go to the trunk and I'd open it up and I'd pour in oil and transmission fluid. And then, then I would drive somewhere else. And every week or so, I was spending all this money on this fluid. But the problem was I wasn't fixing the issue, right? Probably for a couple hundred bucks, I might have been able to fix the issue, but I didn't have that. I didn't want to spin it. So all I did was I just kept pouring in this fluid to cover up the problem so the car would keep running. All right, that's what the old covenant system did. It didn't fix the root problem that you and I are absolutely devastated by sin. 
We have a sin nature that can never be fixed by killing a lamb or a goat or a bull. We have a sin nature that will not be fixed by an imperfect priest, a sinful priest going in to approach God on our behalf. So the law was totally deficient in dealing with this root issue that we needed it to deal with, which was that we are sinful. And so this is where our author says, this is where Jesus comes in, verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. In other words, he entered into the heavenly tabernacle, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus goes in and he's able to go into the real tabernacle in God's presence on the basis of his own blood not the blood of bulls and goats. And he makes a once for all sacrifice. In other words, it's not one that he has to repeat year after year after year after year. He does it and it's done. And it's an eternal sacrifice that provides eternal life. It's effective in a way that the Old Testament sacrifices were not because Jesus, one, is absolutely perfect and flawless, not sinful. Secondly, Jesus is a human being who offers himself in exchange for other human beings. And third, Jesus is the Son of God who's an eternal, infinite offering on our behalf. And so God permanently and once for all accepts the sacrifice of Jesus. And what the law did was simply provide a way to defer God's wrath until Jesus came. The blood of bulls and goats, all they did was cleanse the outside. This sprinkling of ashes with a heifer, what that was was a special ritual where they took a heifer, they burned it up, and they took the ashes. And if you were ceremonially unclean, particularly you touched somebody who had done something unclean or you touched a dead body, they would sprinkle that on you, cleanse the outside. It says what Jesus does is he cleanses the conscience, the inside. Jesus, through his blood, solved our real problem that you and I are alienated from God because of our sin. The law could never do that. I find it interesting. Today, the Jewish people still practice Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. They do it differently than they did back in the Old Testament, obviously, because there's no temple. There's no tabernacle. They don't practice animal sacrifice most of the time. Some, Some sects of Jews will still sacrifice chickens, actually, on that day, but most of them do not. But what they do is they get together on the eve of Yom Kippur and they fast for 24 hours. They are not allowed to bathe. They're not allowed to anoint themselves with any oil or perfume. They're not allowed to engage in marital relations. They, for 24 hours, they purify themselves and then they go to the synagogue. And on the eve of Yom Kippur, the priest will recite a prayer and, and that prayer is uh, one where they will say, for the next year, God, annul all the vows that we might take because we're sinful. And we, we might make a rash vow and dishonor you. We're imperfect. And then they will pray to God for forgiveness for all of their sins for the past year. And then for the next day, they will come back again and they will get together and they will pray to God all day long for forgiveness over and over and over again. Forgiveness for things they've done against God and they're supposed to go to people that they've offended and ask for forgiveness. And then at the end of the day, 
The priest will blow on a shofar, a ram's horn. And what that signifies is now the gates of prayer are closed until next year. And when you read people who practice it to this day, they'll say there's a note even of desperation in those final moments and in that final prayer because everybody says, I got to get in this prayer, this one last prayer before the next year to ensure that my sins are taken care of, that I'm right with God, I'm right with my fellow man. God, forgive me. And then the horn blows. Got to wait till next year. And that's the spirit of, of Yom Kippur, of this Day of Atonement. And in contrast, what it says is Jesus goes in, he walks straight into the presence of God, sacrifices himself once for all on our behalf. And so when we approach God now, if you've believed in Jesus Christ and received the forgiveness that he offers through his blood, you approach God now because the spirit of God lives in you. God actually lives in you. And so now you can approach him directly. There's no curtain. The Hebrews will talk about this, that when Jesus died, that curtain, that veil between the holy place and the most holy place tore in half from top to bottom, opened up the way for us to enter God, enter into God's presence. We have permanent reconciliation. I don't know if you guys uh, have ever had a situation in your life where maybe you were on the outs with somebody. There was an argument or a dispute or a disagreement. And you just walked around and you were carrying that load of frustration and tension and nervousness. I I can remember a couple of years ago, I was on my way to an event and right before I left the house, my wife and I got into a disagreement. I know that uh, uh, you guys, when you're married, that probably won't ever happen to you. Uh, But uh, my wife and I got into a little disagreement right as I was on my way out of the house and uh, we didn't have time to resolve it. And I had to go to this event and I had to interact with people and I got there and man, I just felt off. Because I knew that there was this relationship that was un, unresolved and unreconciled and, and it was tough for me to be there. And uh, as I was there kind of trying to muddle through, I got a text on my phone from my wife and, and I looked at it and it just said, I'm sorry, I love you, I forgive you, uh, let's talk later. And all of a sudden, this huge burden was lifted, right? Texted her back, love you too, not sure what I did wrong. We'll fit. No, just kidding. <laughs> Texted her back, said, I love you too. We'll talk about it later. And all of a sudden, this huge burden is lifted from me and I'm able to focus. I'm able to do what I need to do. I'm able to be joyful, right? That's what Hebrews says Jesus did for us. Since the beginning of humanity, since Adam and Eve fell, we've been walking around with all of this guilt, And all of this distance between us and God in an unreconciled relationship. And what Jesus does is he comes in his death and resurrection, fixes that issue. And now we have reconciliation and access to God. And we're able to walk right in and worship him. We don't need to send the high priest because we have a high priest in Jesus. And the spirit of Jesus lives in us. And so he lifted the biggest problem that we have. If you don't know God through Jesus Christ this morning, the message for you is this. You can have a relationship with God that you cannot have because of what you do. It'll never be good enough. No matter how good you are, you and I are at our very core sinful. And we need reconciliation. So Jesus died in our place. He took our punishment and he rose again so we could have life. 
For those of us that know him, I, I think the application this passage is pushing us toward is that there's a better way of worshiping than the old system. That we can go straight into God's presence because of Jesus Christ. We can come before him in prayer. We can sing songs of worship to him knowing that he hears us, he loves us, and he accepts our worship. Uh, So we're going to close actually this morning with a song of worship. We're going to worship and thank God for what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. That because of him, we can approach the throne of God. Because of him, sin doesn't separate us from him anymore. And we know we can worship freely because of Jesus Christ. Our Father, we do praise you because you gave us Jesus, because he died for us in our place and rose again. So we can have life eternal, so also we can worship you. We praise you because your spirit is here in this room dwelling in the hearts of these men and women who are singing and worshiping you, and that is because of what Jesus Christ has done. It's because you have done away with the old system and given us a new way to approach you in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you. I pray as we go throughout our week that we would sing constant praises of worship to you because of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus our Savior. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. See you all next week.